valley, armies are camped out. Between them, there are waves of heat rising off the ground that distort the view. On one side, the Philistines, invaders who don't belong there, who have already encroached on the land of Judah. On the other side, the Israelites, led by King Saul, their first king, a startup people that is kind of made good, an upstart people still figuring out who they are and how they'll be now that they're settling down. They've been in the land like two or three hundred years. You know, they're newcomers. And it's not like it was empty when they got there. As for the Philistines, they were from Crete. They're seafaring warriors who settled on the coast of Israel, Palestine, not that much longer after the Israelites arrived. But everybody now was holding steady until the Philistines started to move east, away from the coast, inland toward the heart of the people. And the newly anointed king, king over a people who'd never had a king before, was going to stop them. He had to stop them. He'd fought against enemies on every side, the book of Samuel reports. He'd fought valiantly. He'd rescued Israel from the hands of those who'd plundered them. But there was still hard fighting against the Philistines. And any strong or valiant warrior that the king Saul laid eyes on, Saul took into his service the work of defeating the Philistines. So with that company around him, Saul and the army of Israel were camped out. And the armies on the opposite mountains eyed each other. As much activity as there was in the camps, the valley between them was empty and still and quiet except twice a day, because every morning and every evening into the valley stepped a champion kitted out in like 100 or 125 pounds of armor, carrying a spear and a javelin and preceded by his shield bearer. And from the plain, when he got there, step by step by labored step, he roared up to the Israelites, taunting them and inviting them to solve this the old-fashioned way, one-on-one, as somebody said in discussion, and we'll all abide by what happens. If Israel would send out their one chosen warrior, this could all be done with. The stalemate over. Israel knew that this was a way a battle could happen, Israel also knew which way it would go, and so stalemate. And every morning and every evening, Goliath roared at them, reminding them what was at stake and reminding them how it would go. Every day started with a reminder that it was hopeless. Every day ended with a reminder that there was no way out. Malcolm Gladwell has a book called David and Goliath, and it's built around the idea that everything we know about this story is wrong. Not like the height of the characters or... David's age or whatever, but the very meaning that we've made of it. Every time we use the phrase David and Goliath about a sports upset or about a band of grassroots activists who win against a huge corporation or or a single community organizer who reveals some harm that's been swept under the rug, every time we say it, we have deeply misunderstood the story. We have misunderstood giants. We have deeply misunderstood underdogs. What gives a giant its strength Gladwell says, is often the source of its greatest weakness. And the very fact of being an underdog teaches an underdog some skills that you just can't get any other way. And I don't want to disappoint Malcolm Gladwell, and I'm also not in a position to, but some preachers beat him to the punch. Okay, let's go back to when this was just a fairy tale. 
Once upon a time, two armies squared off. And on one side, there was a giant. And on the other side, there were three brothers who'd gone to fight. Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. One day, the three brothers received a visitor from home. It was their little brother. He was too little to fight. Plus, he had to watch their father's sheep. He had come to visit them. He brought them food and news from home, and he was supposed to take word home from them. The little brother's name was David. While David was in the camp of the army, the giant from the other side came out as he did every day. Fee-fi-fo-fum! I defy the ranks of Israel. Choose a man to fight me. And the giant's voice shook the earth. The army of Israel looked at their feet. But when David heard the giant and saw that no one would fight him, he asked, what'll be done for the soldier who kills this giant? And the answer came that the one who defeats the giant will get to marry a princess and have great riches. So David, a shepherd boy, was bold to go into the king and say, I will fight the Philistine. The king gave the boy his own armor. The king gave the boy his helmet and his coat of chainmail. The king gave the boy his sword and oof. When the boy tried to move, he couldn't take a step. So he took off the armor and the helmet and the coat of mail and he set down the sword. The preachers who beat Malcolm Gladwell to the punch, they heard the clatter of Saul's armor as David takes it off and discards it. They heard the slow clanking of Goliath's heavy gear as he stepped, stepped, stepped out into the valley. They heard the heavy breathing of the shield bearer carrying the shield, the servant who was needed to guide Goliath because Goliath had to peer out from under his helmet to even see where he was going. The preachers who beat Malcolm Gladwell to the punch, and yes, I saw in the chat that, who knows, maybe he'll join the call. The preachers who beat Gladwell to the punch heard the crunch, crunch, crunch of David's sandals running, 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 running out into the valley, light and fast. Those preachers heard the whistling of the slingshot and the sound of a shocking impact against the giant's forehead. They heard the heavy crash of his fall. And if you know the story, maybe that's not news to you. Maybe you've heard it that way too. Maybe you already suspect or know what Gladwell used to make a bestseller out of that David wasn't an unlikely hero. David was the only one on either side of the valley who was suited to the task. David wasn't under-equipped. He was the only one with the tools he needed. He wasn't an underdog. He was God's chosen. You don't even have to be Malcolm Gladwell or a preacher or a believer in fairy tales to know that he was God's chosen. You just have to have read the previous chapter. If you read the previous chapter, you already met David and you already know he's the next king. In the previous chapter, even King Saul has met David. It's a trick of how ancient texts work and get sewn together that in the David and Goliath story, they haven't met yet. But we, the readers, already know who this errand boy is and we know that he's the next king. We know how it's going to go. When Goliath hauled all that armor into the valley, he was ready for one kind of fight. 
a fight with somebody else like him. A big guy, heavily armed, who would fight the way that Goliath knew how to fight. With big weapons. A person who'd more or less stand in one place and whose blows Goliath could deflect or have his shield bearer deflect. Who Goliath could strike down from like an arm's length away with his heavy sword and instead crunch, crunch, crunch. Here comes David running and while he's still far off, he reaches for one of those stones. The tools of his trade loads it up and fires and every beleaguered sports fan, every weary community organizer, every scrappy band of activists sitting through yet another meeting holds their breath and hears the stone make contact and feels the earth shake when the heavy body lands. David has won. Who could have seen it coming? Maybe we could win too. And it's fine and, and good to hear it that way, to feel the waves of energy that ripple out through the valley up into the mountains where the rest of the Israelites finally find their courage and rush down, down, down across the plain and pursue the Philistines to know that giants do fall, that all is not lost. It's fine and good and necessary to listen to for what is happening in the world that others aren't hearing, but you can. When if others are staring at their feet and you feel like, what, what, is nobody going to do anything? Are we not going to take action? It's good to listen to what God has given you ears to hear. You with your slingshot and your stones. Not an unlikely hero at all, but the only one for the task. There are giants that must fall. There are giants that are teetering even now, those systems teetering even while they're still hollering that their way is the only way. It's important, too, to hear the temptation to become like the thing that threatens us. The temptation to believe the lie that the only way to win is to fight on the giant's terms. To believe the lie that we've got to suit up and fight at all that we should somehow send out our best to try and put an end to the enemy's greatest strength once and for all. But here's what happens in this story. Here's what has already happened by this point. God used all of who David was, his speed, his aim, his experience, like Mandy said. What a surprise for Goliath. What a strategic advantage. And God used David's confidence and David's cockiness and his quickness to outrage. Like, how fast did that happen? He was there dropping off bread and cheese, which is what the Bible says he was dropping off. And he heard the giant yell and he looked up this guy and he was furious right away. We're going to let this guy talk to us? This, uh, I mean, about our God this way? God used David's certainty about who the bad guys are and what was within David's own power to accomplish, and his reckless conviction, how he spoke to the king, the king, how David spoke to the king about the army, how he said with some certainty, I used to keep sheep. Used to, like until 15 minutes ago. And for David, just like for Goliath, some of his greatest strengths, just like for Goliath, were also his downfall. David's certainty about who the bad guys were his confidence in what was his to do and his to take, his courage, his outrage, his quickness to dance in praise, a piece of what also made him run into the valley, impulsive, bold, courageous, foolhardy. And when he fell down, 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 he had no warning either, like it came out of nowhere, thwack, down David went. 
They're giants that are teetering even now inside myself. The flawed parts of me that God has put to good use anyhow for God's purposes, for the good of myself and even the good of others. There's some part of those flawed parts that wake me up every morning yelling, it's hopeless! You'll never change! Can you imagine overcoming this? And I am inclined to agree. I am tempted to numb out and look away. I'm tempted sometimes to dress up like somebody else and fight on terms that I don't even agree with. Some of those flawed parts of me keep me up bellowing every evening, send out the best parts of yourself and I'll still win. You know how this ends. And thanks to this Sunday school fairy tale Bible story of David and Goliath, I do know, I do know how it ends. I know that God has given me ears to hear and a hair trigger for certain kinds of outrage and a pocket full of surprising tools. I know that God will use all of who I am, all of who you are, and that it is not unlikely at all that giants will fall. I know that God is with me and that at last the stalemate will end.